Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. And we're back with exciting news. Yes, we are now professional. We have a sponsor for the show, which is awesome for us, but even more awesome for you. Indeed, because who doesn't love a sweet, sweet online shopping discount code? And in this case, it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep. From our good friends, Prism Coffee, who are four Canberra lads who I've known for a while. Uh, who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee so john how do the people get this amazing <laughs> discount you speak of go to their website which is prismcoffee.com.au pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got you can get it ground you can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own they've got all of the options uh, and then you use the code peak coffee in the discount bit of the shopping cart and uh you'll get a sneaky 10 percent off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time i don't remember exactly what it is but i think they express post everything so hopefully quickly perfect amazing well, and that's it. Without further ado, here's the episode. Yeah. Presented Enjoy. by Thomas Lilly and John Sarah and Baby Cry in the Background, not included. Which Excellent. means we're back. Another episode of Peak Speak. Yes. Welcome. This is going to be one of those awkward three-way things <laughs> where there's this weird delay and we're all kind of waiting for each other to talk, so bear with us. But we have Aw very Awkward three-ways are the only kind of three-ways I like. <laughs> <laughs> have a very special guest with us this morning, Mr. Brandon Kempter. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on today. really appreciate it. No problem. What are you drinking? Ah, I've got uh, my second dose of caffeine this morning to kickstart the heart and uh, get the brain working as well. John, do you have any recommendations for caffeine? Oh, <laughs> fuck, man. It gets better every week. I don't know how you do it. I do. Fortunately for you, Brandon, we have the coffee sponsor here at the most professional powerlifting podcast in Australia. Uh, our good friends at Prism have graciously given us a discount code for our users, our users, our listeners and guests and whoever else we feel like giving it to, to use. Uh, go to their website, which is prismcoffee.com.au. Fuck, I really need to be Jesus better at that. Christ. Yeah, I know that was bad, wasn't it? Uh, but the code is peak speak, all one word. And uh, you can hook yourself up with some delicious coffee beans roasted right here in Canberra and delivered to your door. Perfect. Other than that, yeah, you sound like a radio host. Um, so, uh, for the uneducated and uninformed out there, uh, Brandon, can you please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and what you've accomplished in the world of natural bodybuilding? Yeah, sure. So, my name is Brandon Kempter. Um, uh, I suppose from a personal perspective of bodybuilding, uh, I started competing uh, in natural bodybuilding as a teenager and worked my way through teens. Uh, juniors opens into professional bodybuilding, most recently competing last year in 2019, in which my season spanned across uh, Australia and the USA. I competed as uh, a pro and an amateur for that matter in various federations um, and uh, achieving essentially my ultimate goal of winning a uh, world champion, um, winning ice worlds as a pro natural bodybuilder. Uh, from a professional perspective, I work as a uh, sports nutritionist slash um, uh, slash coach, and I specialize in preparing national bodybuilders for the stage. Awesome, man. Um, so the the world championships that you won recently, 
for you, what's the ultimate pinnacle? Like what's above that? Is there anything above that for you or uh, does it start to get mixed up with other federations that you don't really want to uh, associate with? No, look, when it comes to natural bodybuilding, um, you know, I, I love supporting essentially all, all federation uh, and the ICN, which was the uh, primary federation I competed for last year, that was the world championship I won. That was essentially the ultimate goal, but there is, I think, one goal above that, which I really like to tick off, which is the WNBF Worlds. And I did have the uh, pleasure of competing at the WNBF Worlds. Um, and I came away with a second at that uh, particular show in New York, which was a great experience. And that's essentially the next goal for me from a, uh, uh, you know, within my own bodybuilding, yeah, to accomplish. Is there, is there such thing as like a natural Mr. Universe? Uh, well, essentially each federation has their, their Welsh worlds show. And that is essentially, I suppose, what, what most would call the, the universe show. I did compete in the, what's called the IMBA natural universe in LA last year. Uh, so that's essentially the peak, um, uh, in alignment with their natural Olympia show. So one in the same nearly. Yeah, cool. Cool, cool, cool. And, and sorry, I'm I am asking all these questions that we didn't have written down. But um, what what's <laughs> what's the difference? Like you mentioned, ICN, uh, the one you just mentioned, and um, WNBF. Yeah, what? correct. So just like powerlifting, I suppose there's a million and one acronyms there, yeah. and they are all slightly different federations um, that I suppose all within the same genre. So uh, ICN is I compete natural. WNBF is World Natural Bodybuilding Federation, and ICN is uh, International Natural Bodybuilding Association. So they all stand for a very similar um, sort of cause in terms of offering the natural athlete a uh, place to compete. Uh, but they all have slightly different, um, slightly different standards in terms of what they define as symmetrical or you know their ideal physique. So generally speaking, IMBA is a little bit more size dominant, for example. Uh, WMBF is a little bit more uh, based around symmetry, uh, sorry, symmetry slash conditioning. I'd say they really highlight that side of things. And they all have their own bespoke definitions of natural bodybuilding in terms of the way they test and the years drug-free they need, with WMBF essentially being one of the, in fact, I'd probably say it's the most thorough in that they want seven years minimum drug-free. They polygraph everyone and then urine sample um, the basically the top three. Um, yeah. Polygraph. So you got polygraphed. You got a lab detect test. I did. I mean, look, you, as, as you and I likely uh, agree on, the, the, the validity of, of polygraphs are debatable. However, I think that it's a good sort of starting tool. And obviously it's of minimal cost to the Federation compared to testing every single person. Uh, and then obviously you're tested um, as well if you, if you place. Can you imagine going to the effort of like hiding all of your drug use, training yourself to pass a polygraph test and then like placing third and getting drug tested and busted anyway? Like you'd just be easier to take all those drugs and compete in a different federation. Exactly right. I mean, there's a federation for everyone. Uh, yeah. The untested federations, just like in, in powerlifting, it's, it's not to say like you have to use drugs to compete in that federation, but it's like you... I mean, I mean, I know nationals that compete in, in tested federations, but you know that you're at a disadvantage. It's just how it goes. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's the way I explain the powerlifting di uh, difference to a lot of people, especially those who are relatively new to the powerlifting world, who are not like stepping into their first competition to be super competitive anyway, and are, and are instead just a, more interested in like, you know, competing either in the gym that they used to, they're used to training in or with their friends or with yeah. the equipment they're used to, like all of those things that make a way bigger difference at the lower end of the spectrum than the mm. drug discussion ever will. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Mm. So uh, let, let's sort of segue into a bit more around your training and coaching philosophies, right? So uh, I've had the pleasure of, you know, having you train people out of my gym for a, a long time and uh, slowed down a little bit since you've moved to pretty much exclusively at home. So we miss seeing your beautiful face around. Oh, um, and one thing that stands out to me about uh, your lifters and about what you, you do personally in your training too, 
you guys do do a lot of like strength work. You do do a lot of like heavy deadlifts and heavy hip thrusts, like heavy, heavy movements, heavy compound movements. Um, from, from my perspective, if I was thinking about the best way to, you know, uh, garner hypertrophy, deadlifts wouldn't be at the top of that list. Like why, how, how, and why do uh, those big compound movements fall in your philosophy and um, yeah. How have you found them working for you and your athletes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, great question. I mean, the, the way I look at it is that uh, one's developmental outcomes is, you know, logical uh, manifestation of their moderate to long-term training environment. And if we look at powerlifters, for example, on one side and bodybuilders on the other, it, generally speaking, the development of the athlete leaves clues, you know, it's, it relates, it's directly related to how they're trained. So we look at powerlifters, generally speaking, we see guys with, you know, okay, glute development, thick, low back, thick mid back, okay lats, but not so much because you're probably prioritizing horizontal pull, etc. Big traps, some delt, not a lot of arms. Whereas bodybuilders, obviously we're really directing our volume in alignment with bringing up key areas to promote whatever our bespoke definition of symmetry is. And those big lifts, uh, the squat and deadlift provided that the individual is not um, you know, compromised in any way from a, from a perspective of from a structural perspective, I think they do have their place um, in terms of rounding out physique development, particularly through the posterior chain. If you look at people that really just approach bodybuilding um, without those big lifts, generally speaking, we see gaps. You know, often I see guys that turn around their rear or bicep that have this beautiful width through their lats as a product of a lot of vertical pull movement. Maybe they just don't have the thickness through the mid back from the heavy road work and they don't have that sort of thickness and the sort of binding of the TL fascia and the lower lat as a product of doing heavy RDLs, big deadlifts, et cetera. And those gaps, I mean, realistically, you're as big as your strongest muscle group, I'm sorry, as big as your uh, smallest muscle group proportionally. So although the squat and deadlift, for example, may not be a core uh, sort of a, a ginormous, or I should say substantial part of the, the accumulated train volume, I think it's still good sort of supplemental volume to round out that, that, um, uh, their development certainly. So does that mean that you take a movement like that? So traditionally say a deadlift, I imagine Thomas and I think very similarly in this, in that we would prioritize it as like probably the first movement of the day with yeah. the view that that's the one that we want the highest level of, uh, technical, sort of attention to detail and output and all of those sort of things because it's the primary driver of the the adaptation we're seeking. But mm. uh, in your case, do you then like deprioritize and put it at a different point in a training session or would you still put it up front like that? Look, I think when it comes to to uh, to building programming and, and assessing sequencing, obviously it is bespoke to the individual. Uh, however, I will say that there are occasions where we do put it second in the program, for example. So if we're really trying to prioritize hamstring development, for example, we may put an isolation in at the start, just because particularly with advanced and quite strong athletes that are going to contribute, uh, accumulate quite a lot of fatigue in the central components, um, which could be a rate limiting factor in a cure of peripheral training stressors and stress we want later on. So we might go, which I'm sure, I know Thomas has seen me do, I'll jump in and I'll, put in a few sets of hamstring curls uh, at a very high relative intensity before perhaps getting into, I mean, perhaps getting into uh, the deadlift, for example. And although it becomes a bit of a rate limiting factor in terms of maximizing uh, performance output on the deadlift, from the perspective of, um, of directing stress to the tissues we want to maximize for hypertrophy, it, it makes logical sense. So there are definitely occasions where we do that. Uh, alternatively, there are, uh, definitely occasions where it is the first movement in the training session. However, it might not comprise uh, an overly large amount of volume. Cool, we do one to two sets on that. Great, now let's get into the more quote-unquote um, hypertrophy specific, really direct work. Mm. And then does that stuff and the intensity of it, as in those those compound movements, does that phase in and out uh, depending on the proximity to a competition? Like as you're getting closer to a competition and calories are starting to dwindle, uh, does the risk reward ratio kind of uh, get a little bit too high? So you take those things out? Potentially. So look, when it comes to 
uh, intensity. You know, as you guys know, uh, hypertrophy is quite a flexible adaptation. It's primarily an intensity and volume mediated um, adaptation. So we're always training at quite a high relative intensity, but there does come a time in condus preparation where the fatigue, the, the perhaps not ideal fatigue to stimulus ratio associated with some of those big lifts becomes a bit of a challenging point to manage because we're really trying to, you know, manage performance retention in the suboptimal environment that is being exceptionally lean and uh, being in a global energy deficit. So there are definitely times where we trade movements out as we move through contest preparation. For example, um, you know, in the middle of my off season, I'm going to definitely prioritize big deadlifts. Uh, I've got a little bit of fat mass around my joint structures. I can take the pounding of lifting big weights and that is very potent stimulus for growth. Uh, as we get closer to show, a deadlift might turn into a conventional, may turn into a trap bar, better fatigue to stimulus ratio, less tech requirement, uh, less likely less affected by changes in levers associated with decreasing fat mass. Then that trap bar deadlift may turn into additional Romanian deadlift volume right at the end. Uh, much like a squat might turn into go from a back squat to a machine squat um, as you move through contest preparation. So definitely we, we do have to make some changes along the way to accommodate a potential decrement to recovery capacity and prep. Awesome. Um, you mentioned there, you know, that, that, uh, that relationship with hypertrophy around volume and intensity. And when, when you say training with a relatively high intensity, like that's, if someone was to ask me, how does Brandon train? Like you fucking go hard. Like you train really, really hard and your attention to detail is, is, um, right up there, which is obviously, uh, uh you know, your success is obviously attributed to that in a great detail. Like I remember distinctly last year, just before your show, um, we got those new green monsters, those like kiwi fruit monsters. Yeah. So Brendan came up to the fridge and he's like, Oh, you got the new monsters. I'm going to, I'm going to have a look. And he pick, he's eating rice and he picks up the monster and it's like seven calories in the monster. So we picked out like five grains of rice or something and threw it in the bin. Like that level of detail is, is, is Brendan to a T, but uh, like where I wanted to take that is, you know, your grit, your drive and your sort of, um, when you're in, in prep mode and probably for you outside of prep mode as well, that mm. kind of bodybuilding 24 seven, do you think that's something uh, that can be taught? Like, is that something that you really try to instill in your lifters? Do you have tools to kind of like teach them grit and teach them intensity and, um, or are you just sort of guiding them and it's really up to them to find that intrinsic motivation and make it about them? Yeah. I mean, look, I do my best to, to portray the requirement uh, of a high relative intensity to my athletes. That obviously is a really important component. Um, I mean, in terms of teaching someone that, I mean, you can guide them through that process. Obviously, like do I work essentially solely online, um, but I do work a lot through video in terms of just uh, assessing how they're moving um, and, and guiding them in terms of uh, where I think they are in terms of true proximity to failure. Um, because I think a lot of people do cut themselves off quite short. And, and obviously the, in fact, that'd be another arm to talk about is, you know, RP slash RIR and how that applies and where it doesn't apply to bodybuilding. But um, I think by the time most individuals get to me from a coaching perspective, they've usually competed a couple of times. They've likely followed me for maybe, you know, a length of time. They have a bit of an idea in terms of what my expectations are. And from a coaching perspective, I am uh, quite, I would say I'm very honest in terms of these are my expectations. This is, this is what, what I need from you um, in order to get your best result. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, like on the, I think of something that like MRAPs, you know, like in, in my perspective, I don't believe MRAPs are a great tool for hypertrophy or for strength, but in terms of like, uh, really teaching someone the the art of the grind and the art of like just fucking gritting something out. Uh, I can see where they might have an application in training, but like you said, maybe let's swing this uh, in the direction of RPE and RIR. How do you incorporate those things into your programming into into your training? Yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I think the RPE style slash RR style definitely has applicability, uh, particularly for powerlifters and potentially for bodybuilders. Um, obviously. As mentioned, hypertrophy is a flexible adaptation that's intensity and volume mediated. 
Uh, obviously, in reference to intensity, I'm referring to relative intensity. We need to be in close proximity to failure. Um, and the application of the IP scale, where it has applicability is that we know that we need to train hard, uh, but we know that when we train perhaps to complete failure, we accumulate not just the peripheral fatigue, which is perhaps conducive to hypertrophy, but the central components, which then subsequently limit our capacity to accumulate that peripheral fatigue. And I think that that is definitely a consideration that's worthy of mentioning for really strong athletes and really experienced athletes that have the capacity to gauge proximity to failure. But I think a lot of guys are coming into the industry, perhaps with a lack of experience, but at least uh, a basic grasp of what the RP scale is. And if they are not consistently or not have, have not consistently tested across their trained career, their true point of concentric and or technical failure, they don't have the capacity to gauge it. So I actually don't use the RP scale overly much uh, within my coaching unless I'm working with a experienced athlete that can gauge it who, and who is very strong. Because for the intermediate beginner athlete, they don't have the neural capacity to really drive to those high levels. And on top of that, when I apply the RP scale, I would apply it primarily to those really tech dominant movements like the squat and deadlift. Whereas I always describe movements as, or, or describe training as you need to focus on having intention and intensity. Because intention for us is moving in a manner that directs stress to the target tissue and intensity we're talking about effort and investment. And we need to merge those two pieces, but different movements have a different hierarchy of focus. Like a squat is, intention first it's a tech dominant movement intensity follows that uh whereas like a leg press you know it's a brute force movement there's not a lot of technique in it it's intensity first intention second adjust your foot position so you can direct stress to the target tissues etc and find comfort but intensity is the game so on things like a leg press i would very rarely bind an rpe to because when most people think it's the last repetition if I put a gun to their head, I'd probably get five more out of them. In fact, I know I would. So I think that uh, you can sort of cut yourself off at the knees in those real intensity dominant movements um, by perhaps using that. Um, so that's that's at least my my uh, opinion on that side of things. So like I said, it has applicability, but got to be used in the right context, I think. Mm. When, it, um, when it comes to that uh, experience of like pushing to true failure, and also, I guess this sort of touches on the idea of like grit and bringing training, training intensity and stuff. Uh, what's your like sporting background pre bodybuilding? Uh, and do you think something like that has an influence on that level of grit and intensity that you have, or has most of that then been cultivated through your increasing understanding of how you respond to training and stuff like that? Yeah, great question. I mean, look, prior to bodybuilding, I, I wouldn't say in high school slash primary school, that was an, an overly athletic child, to be totally honest. Uh, my introduction to sport was primarily as in middle distance slash long distance running. So completely opposite end of the pendulum. I enjoy There's that. There's a level of grit there too that oh, 100%. is a, a different type. It's, I reckon that why I did that, I'm not entirely sure. That sucks more than anything I can imagine, but the... <laughs> What I enjoyed about it was obviously it was exactly that, just the pushing to the to the limit, and pushing through discomfort. Um, and I, I do think it's a definitely a helpful piece. And then obviously I realized that it wasn't allowing me to look how I wanted to look. Then I participated in uh, basically a combination of CrossFit and bodybuilding, where I part bodybuild, part CrossFit. Um, and again, I love the community aspect of CrossFit, but it wasn't giving me the progress I wanted from the perspective of making muscular gains. And then I focus solely on that. So I, so, uh, solely on bodybuilding. So I do think it is a con something that, uh, you get conditioned to over time. And in anecdote within my coaching, the individuals that I've worked with who have a, uh, sporting background through their adolescence, definitely find it easier to find that, that, uh, that, that psychological place that you need to grind. So when someone comes to me and says, hey, like I used to swim in high school at a national level, I, I know that, hey, they were in the pool six days a week. The smallest training session was two hours. For them, training an hour and a half in the gym is totally fine. They know what it's like to create routine around training and eating patterns and what it's like to push their body to the limit. So 
you know, there's definitely um, th those early portions of one's training career can can definitely be beneficial in long in the long term. Yeah, I'd I'd certainly um, echo that uh, anecdotal evidence as well. In that, the people who have have had some level of sporting success and it doesn't even necessarily have to be at a particularly high level but to have engaged in the process in an environment outside of a gym sometimes makes coming into what is a relatively safe and comfortable environment quite easy i think i, I think um even beyond their mentality you you do a movement assessment uh in the gym you will straight away know whether this person has has trained through their adolescence or if they've picked up lifting at 25 years of age, I can guarantee it in terms of their uh, coordination, that kind of thing as well. You can but always you can see find, it yeah. the way they walk in the door. Like that's the, <laughs> that's the joke I always make is you can tell the difference between someone who's just picked up a barbell having spent 10 years sitting at a desk versus someone who played sport all the way through school. With that said, you know, these are traits that you can learn later in life. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. So coming back to, you know, you were talking about leg press, for example, and, um, you know, it's intensity driven and, you know, most people uh, won't know how to, you know, train in proximity to true failure. Then how do you program for those people exercises like that? Do you just provide set and rep and then play with the weight? Um, are you using like uh, recomp style programming or are you using reps and reserve? Well, I mean, from a programming perspective, I do use Recomposer as a recording tool. Um, but generally speaking, I would allot occasionally one set, which I'd recommend they take to the point of complete failure. Um, and obviously I wouldn't, it's not something that I would do with a big compound movement because technical failure would be miles, miles before true concentric failure in an inexperienced lifter. But for movements like leg press, you know, a goal for the week might be okay. Pardon me. Let's take one set to complete concentric failure. Um, Make it the third set. Use the same load you used on the on the second set. Let's video. Let's film it and see where you're at. Uh, and there might be occasions where, you know, they they reach that point of failure, but you know it's a mental piece. I can see that in the video, and I'll say, "Cool, do the same load next week and go harder again." And I I do love to use leg press as my sort of benchmark for intensity, simply because I don't think that there is really another movement on this planet that you can push harder in. And if you and what you perceive as hard is all relative to how hard you've trained in the past. So if you know what it's like to go to the complete point of concentric failure where you know if someone had a gun to your head, there's not another repetition to tank on a leg press. Uh, and you can apply that kind of mentality with high level precision in a bicep curl, you will really maximize your progression across every single movement selection. Guarantee that. Yeah, really cool. I like that. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to swing direction again um, and coming back to, you know, talking about the kind of people that you work with. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this because I'm just going with, by conversations that we've had in the past. Yeah. Um, I believe you're pretty selective with the kind of people that you take on and not, not in the sense of like, uh, not in the sense of judging the person on the other end, but um uh, you, it's about brand preservation, right? You're not going to take someone on who you don't believe you can get the best out of in the time frame that they want to do it in, right? Yeah. Um, how has how do you believe that served you uh, in terms? Because like when I think of uh, when I think of your brand, I just think of champions. I feel like everyone that you take to the bodybuilding stage is always like right at the top somewhere. Uh, they've all got ridiculous conditioning. Like, you, and I, uh, I'm wondering, is your selective nature when it comes to the people you work with part of that? Um, and has that helped you grow and solidify your brand? Well, I appreciate that comment. That's a great observation there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, definitely. Um, look, in recent years, I have had to be somewhat selective with who I work with, and that's by virtue of. of time availability, I am one person, I can only work with so many people, so I need to make sure that uh, I'm working with the right people. Uh, over the years, as a product of the individuals we brought to the stage, we generally attract a certain population. It is those people that that want to take it to, you know, to, to 100%. Uh, very rarely do I get a person that comes to me and says, yeah, I just want to get on stage for the sake of it. And if they do, they're prob prob I'm probably not their coach. Whereas most people come to me and say, okay, I want to see how far I can take this piece of canvas that is my body and I'm, I'm, I'm really ready to go there. Um, 
so yeah, I, I do. I am somewhat selective, um, and I and I, I suppose I put forward my expectations uh, within our consultations. And that consultation, I suppose, serves dual purpose. It allows the athlete to get to know me, and allows me to sort of get to know where they're at uh, physically and mentally. And I think mentally is probably the biggest component. Um, where where someone's starting point is is exactly that, just a starting point. It's where we go from there. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that, I'm not sure if that answered your question there, but um, yeah, I mean, I have had to be somewhat what selective, and um, and obviously the I will say this: the individuals that I work with, or the the section of the industry, is a niche within a niche within a niche. There's bodybuilding, then there's natural bodybuilding. Within that, well, I should say there's physique sports. Within natural physique sports, there is a variety of different categories: bikini, fitness, etc. If you really take it one layer deeper, I predominantly work with bodybuilders and figure uh, women. Uh, within the male population, I also work with fitness a little bit, but I don't work a huge amount with bikini fitness for females. Um, oftentimes when someone uh, inquires for those categories, I would say I know someone who's really good at that and I, I refer them on. Um, and that's simply because I like creating absolute freaks and as awesome as bikini is, it kind of cuts you off the knees a little bit because you can get kind of lean, but don't get too lean. Get sort of muscular, but don't get too muscular. Mm. Whereas once you get into bodybuilding, it's just can, can get as big as possible, be wonderfully symmetrical, and then take it to town for conditioning. Um, mm. So yeah. And then in terms of uh, in terms of getting as big as possible um, in the natural uh, physique and bodybuilding world. Uh, what what is the progression like? Um, like I know for for yourself uh, in terms of the weight that you put on, in terms of like how it looks over you know from when you first came and, and started working out a PTC to your next competitions after that run, you know two years. Uh, it's not a great deal of weight. You looked way different, but it, it wasn't a great deal of weight on the scale. And that's for a male. Like well, then what what's the sort of progression rate you want to see from a male? And, and what about a female? Because I'm guessing that's even less. Yeah. So look, progress in the natural side of things is definitely uh, quite slow. And as to how fast we can progress is obviously dependent on a myriad of potential variables. There's obviously genetic variability in terms of one's sensitivity to uh, training and nutrition, melee. And then, of course, there is also an experience factor there. And for individuals like myself that are getting closer towards their genetic potential, the progression in terms of outright muscle mass uh, is very um is, is quite quite a timely process. So to put a, an absolute in terms of, you know, rate of progress is hard to do. Uh, we always want to make sure we're maximizing it at whatever portion of the, their uh, training career the individual's in. But outright, I mean, I can say that the, the last two times I got on stage, my body weight was exceptionally, was basically symmetrical. In fact, let's say the last time I got on stage, most recently, 2019, I was actually a little bit lighter than the time before. However, conditioning was definitely sharper. The symmetry was in check. And I'll also say that when it comes to bodybuilders, uh, we often throw these terms around. We have, a, we have a bunch of terms, but one of which you would hear a lot of, a lot of is, um, or you'll commonly hear rather, is density. People talk about, oh, you've got more density to your physique. And, and that's obviously a perceptive term that doesn't have a strict definition. But uh, beyond adaptations to muscle in terms of simply adding muscle protein, um, you know, you, you do become more vascular over time, for example. Um, and as you become a better athlete, not, it's not just your methodology uh, in terms of the nutrition ap application, but also from a psychological perspective, it allows you to apply your nutrition that gets better. So over time, uh, you tend to have that more dense look as a product of refining conditioning, but also just laying down your vascular pathways. You get more, more, Vascular, for example, uh, as a secondary adaptation to training. So that does enhance the look as well, irrespective of, you know, putting on mm. 10 kilos of muscle or a, 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 you know, a small amount, like a kilo over a couple of years. Would that be the, the fancy way of saying muscle maturity? That exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> Great summary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bro through and through. Perfect. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna sort of 
tack on to the end of that. Is there a, a point where for someone like yourself, where you said you sort of are approaching, you know, like a genetic ceiling perhaps, uh, is there a point at which you drastically shift your focus away from building muscle rather than, uh, or as the sort of primary goal towards refining your conditioning and improving other areas, or is the whole package pretty much the same and it just depends on how far out from a comp you are? Um, I mean, look, the, I think the goals in the off season and the kindness preparation will, will, will remain consistent. Uh, we're still driving for maximum progress, whatever that is uh, in the off season in terms of increasing muscle mass. Um, and, the, and the preparation goals remain consistent as well. I think, uh, you know, for me, getting closer to my, to my genetic potential, uh, am I there yet? No, um, there's still a little bit more in the tank. You just get a, a disproportionate um disproportional result for your effort investment uh and then of course there does come an eventual time where perhaps you know i get into my my mid 40s late 40s where, where obviously i start to regress despite my best efforts as a product of just wearing my life cycle um and that's going to be a bridge that i'll eventually cross and at that point you know i decide whether i compete to be maximally competitive which i likely won't be anymore or i simply continue to compete for the sake of enjoyment so or you get juicy as fuck. But Brandon, <laughs> that's probably not an option. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that up, but I'm glad you did, Thomas. <laughs> no, all in jest. All in jest. We're going to pick your brain on a couple of uh, nutrition things. And then at the end, we've got um, we've got four or five questions that we ask every guest that comes on that will throw your way as well. Uh, so um, I don't pay a lot of attention to the bodybuilding world debates when it comes to uh, nutrition. Uh, but I know that something that used to be uh, on the cards a lot and featured in a lot of discussions and podcasts and uh, internet arguments was reverse dieting, uh, the best way to do it, its value, etc. cetera, uh, with one camp saying, do it really slowly and take your time. And the other camp saying, why would you do that? Just go straight back to maintenance. Um, where do you stand on the whole issue and, and how do you sort of integrate it into your coaching and your own personal training, you know, post-competition or post-diet phase? Yeah. Well, this is a great question. And you're right, it has been a source of debate in recent times as to why this is, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think the first thing to, to sort of uh, do is to, I suppose, put a generalized definition to what a recovery diet is or a reverse diet is for the sake of contextualization for this conversation. Um, I mean, basically a recovery diet or reverse diet is the, the time that, that proceeds the, uh, the actual dieting bout and conventionally a recovery diet is in reference to, um, basically increasing calories quite quickly, uh, with the intention of putting some fat mass on to, uh, basically, uh, recover and attenuate some of the diet adaptation and the, the, uh, uh, Reverse diet is essentially, is just generally speaking, um, a term used to refer to a, a very slow incremental increase in calories back to maintenance slash into a surplus. Now, as to which is optimal, um, it is sort of the point of debate. And as to why it's a point of debate, I'm not entirely sure. Because realistically, if you look at it from the perspective of function, we know that in a dieting phase, you're gonna accumulate, despite your best efforts, some adaptation to the dieting condition. Uh, this goes across all 11 systems of the body and it primarily relates to energy conservation. You know, We know that we're gonna downregulate certain systems that aren't uh, required for your immediate survival. So you're gonna have some level of immunosuppression, reproductive function likely is uh, downregulated, et cetera. Um, and, you know, our goal in the dieting phase is to attenuate the adaptation as much as possible so that it's as least as, as uh, yeah, as, as least severe as possible. And then in the time following is, well, we need to show your body that energy availability is no longer compromised so that we can allow your system to regulate. Okay, cool. You know, energy, uh, we've got enough stored fat mass to retain health. We've got enough energy coming in that we can start to upregulate. You know, we can normalize hunger signaling. We can normalize your, your endocrine function uh, pertain to sexual, uh, you know, your, your reproductive capacity, et cetera. So I think that if you're coming out of, if you're coming out of a diet from as a bodybuilder that has got to in, you know, international level conditioning, completely striated glutes, you, you don't want to stay there. That's a, that's basically you get in and you get out. 
you need to put on a couple of kilos of fat mass as soon as possible. The goal is put on some fat mass, not the universe, which is very easy to do when you have uh, uh, a big increase in orexigenic hormones. Um, uh, so I, I, would, I would highly recommend we basically push up quite quickly, which would sort of mirror what's conventionally known as the recovery diet. Uh, put on a couple of kilos of fat mass, become weight stable at a healthy body composition, and then commence the uh, the off season from there. Conversely, if you're a bikini athlete and you didn't necessarily have to get overly lean, and you know maybe Instagram's your thing, you want to maintain something that's appreciable, and you're not too concerned about maximizing every bit of your potential gains in the off season, then perhaps a recovery, sorry, a reverse diet, a slower approach. Um, on the exit might be a benefit. So I think which is contextually specific, but I think it's important to note the function or objective of the recovery phase as a whole, and then logically manipulate your nutrition variables around that to achieve it. And then from, from a practical standpoint, so uh, you do take someone to be, um, you know, uh, internationally lean, you know, very, very, very lean, um, you know, striated glutes and all that sort of stuff. When you do start to um, implement that, that recovery diet phase, uh, is it based on previous maintenance calories? Is it based on, you know, you as a coach going by feel essentially, you know, increasing to a certain number and then, you know, playing around with the variables based on how they respond to that? Uh, how do you work it out from a practical standpoint from there? Well, it's going to be a combination of both. Obviously, we'll accumulate a substantial amount of data from the off-season and through contest preparation. The validity of leaning on that data to put in place uh, – a nutrition recommendation on the exit is a little bit limited simply because the the adaptation uh, and big change in total body mass associated with the contest preparation means their maintenance requirements are going to be lower than previous. Um, but we'll lean on it as a, as a goalpost. And basically, we, we implement a uh, protocol uh, that's based in, uh, that's, that's, that's uh, logical and based in, in um, that's evidence-informed. We implement it, run it for a duration, assess it, and then logically manipulate it um, on the way out. But generally speaking, I'm going to put someone in a in a large surplus for around sort of uh, seven seven to fourteen days, and then I may reduce that surplus down a little bit uh, to lift to slow that rate of gain. Uh, but basically, what I'm looking at is around six weeks post show. We want to be around 10% over stage weight. That, that is, by the way, applies to an exceptionally lean individual. Uh, and that's a general guideline that obviously you tweak along the way. Um, bikini athlete or someone that doesn't reach that top level conditioning, obviously the rate of gain on the exit is much less severe because uh, it's not necessary. Cool. And then uh, out of pure curiosity, just a couple of like quick fire questions for you. Um, what for? Let's say for your for your, your most recent competition season, what mm -hmm. what's the lowest uh, lowest weekly average of calories that you got down to approximately? Weekly average, I, I have to dig that out. I can say uh, weekly average with my at the the most aggressive portion of my digging phase uh, was approximately four four to six weeks out, uh, or six to four weeks out rather of the first show, and then from there my calories increased. So at that point. Uh, I got down to weekly average would be approximated in the mid 2000s uh, at that point. Uh, that was training uh, six days a week with a daily step output of approximately uh, six to 8,000. And then in the following, I managed to increase my cows quite substantially, somewhere to the tune of around 500, 600 calories coming to show number one. Uh, and then in the following from there, it retained around that level, which was approximately uh, energy maintenance and the duration of that season was around eight weeks so basically yep. the goal is, is always to be 100 percent show number one and then maintain it for the duration of the season and then in the off season what's the what's the highest sort of weekly average you got to approximately i'll tell you what it actually depends quite a lot on um uh on my environmental factors i can tell you when i started working at ptc for example uh out of your facility um now called Zero Gym, of course. Um, I was on my feet a lot. Therefore, my energy requirements were considerably higher. Mm. Uh, at that point, I would, I mean, I would push in 
high four thousands. I used to get up up you know over five thousand calories, whereas now I am essentially from uh, personal trainer, in person physique coach to uh, a desk worker now. And if I don't really participate in any active walking in the day, um, my general levels of you know, uh, neat, so to speak, would be around 2,000 steps, nothing. So my energy expenditure now is a lot lower, in which case it'd be around mid-3,000s. That'd be a, an appropriate gain phase for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sweet, 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 sweet. And um, uh, competition weight, what was that in the 2019 season? 2019 season, I was around 80 kilos. The lowest weight I had was somewhere around the, the realms of 79 kilos depleted. Uh, and off-season for me, uh, it varies. I used to get a lot softer. Um, at the moment, I'm currently 94 kilos. I used to sit somewhere between 94 to 100 kilos. That's a nice realm in the, in the off-season in terms of something that's semi-appreciable in terms of overall composition, but also allows me to train and, uh, and recover well. Awesome. All right. Let's hit him with the four questions. You go yeah. first. I always fucking forget the first That's why I always question. make you go first. So it gives me time to think. Motherfucker. Uh, so the first one we go with, I think is always the favorite lifting slash training slash competitive memory. Uh, and generally for people like yourself who have both competed as an athlete and are a coach, we like to get like a, you know, your best achievement personally, and then your best achievement or favorite memory from a uh, coaching standpoint. Yeah. I mean, look, my, my uh, most memorable moment in bodybuilding is, I would say it's equal. The, these two, I'm going to give you two. Number one is the first time I got on stage. Uh, and the second would obviously be most recently winning Worlds. Uh, getting on stage the first time was an incredible experience. Um, I got on stage as a, a teen and I really didn't know if I was going to be any good at this bodybuilding thing. I just uh, knew that I loved it. And, so, you know, so that memory is, uh, and I knew very little about it to be totally honest. So that memory is definitely uh, up there with one of my most fond memories uh, in bodybuilding. And professionally, I dare say there's been many great memories, um, but I mean, stepping on stage with a client that, uh, you know, when they receive their, you know, their trophy and achieve that their ultimate goal is, there's nothing more, uh, nothing more rewarding than that. So I would say I couldn't nail it down to one, but that in general is, is absolutely amazing. Yeah, cool. Yeah, nice. Awesome, Thomas. If if you could have um, if you could have dinner with anybody in the world, doesn't have to necessarily be bodybuilding or training related. Uh, pick their brain about anything. They have to be alive right now. Uh, who would it be? Oh, God. Uh, God, that's a really good question. Um, I'd probably have dinner with Doug Miller. Uh, yeah, nice. Just to stare at his amazing biceps and crazy quads. Yeah. <laughs> his arms are ridiculous they are the freakiest things i've ever seen in my life i mean if you want to talk about uh someone who's at the pinnacle of genetic muscle architecture i can't think of a person who's who's better than him his arms insane he's everything's insane great guy <laughs> awesome. uh what's next oh uh so what's something that in you know, in the last sort of 12 to 24 months that you would have considered to be a like firmly held belief, you would have drawn a line in the sand uh, that you have since changed your mind on, not necessarily done a complete 180, but something that, you know, yeah, would have been a hardcore belief that you don't think is the case anymore. Oh, That's that why was, I love dropping this one on people without That is a great question. Honestly, it's, making me, it's yeah. made me think a lot. Um, I wouldn't say 180, but I dare say uh, that my perceptions have changed in this specific topic a little bit. Uh, and that would be um, surrounding athletic performance pertaining to those who choose to be a vegan. Um, I mean, yeah, and that's partly due to um, my, my current line of study at the moment, um, in which case, uh, as we speak at the moment, I'm, I'm doing a, a review on uh, vegan athletes. Um, and I mean, at this point, uh, a little heads up, there's no uh, evidence to suggest it's more effective. However, uh, there is evidence to suggest that we can likely uh, meet the nutrition requirements of that population and have them perform uh, equal. 
with their omnivorous uh, counterparts, which uh, until recently, um, I may have sat in the camp that said, you know what, there's probably still going to be a net decrease in the effectiveness uh, of this athlete due to their, their dietary restraints. Um, so that would be something that I would say I probably, I wouldn't say that I'm 180, but I pivoted on in yeah, terms nice. of my personal and professional opinions on it. Yeah, interesting. Um, and the, the the final question, I actually do have a bonus question after this. The final question of our four Don't fuck is... fuck with the system like that, Thomas. Can I you? can. I am the system. <laughs> Shut up. I am the law. Um, the the final, semi-final question is, if you were to give one piece of advice to a natural bodybuilder starting out, besides get a coach, what would it be? Oh. Don't take drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, best piece of advice, uh, focus on the fundamentals, um, in your lifting and your nutrition and keep your focus central. Uh, we are a sport that is based around comparison. However, it only counts on stage, uh, and comparison can be the thief of all joy. If you are constantly comparing your progress to another, because despite controlling, uh, despite managing the controllable variables that, that contribute to your result. Um, there is a lot of biochemical individuality when it comes to responses and some people are just going to grow faster or slower or et cetera. So I'd say keep your focus central and, uh, and own your own progress. That's important. Yeah. The scourge of social media. Um, my, my bonus question is, you know, you're, you've done four or five shows in a row. You finally finished. You're finally about to enter the off season. What's the thing that you want to eat or drink the most at that point? Everything. <laughs> but what, what would be your absolute go-to? Like what's the thing that you cannot wait to have? I'll tell you something that really fascinates me coming out of the contest preparation is that you tend to gravitate towards things that perhaps aren't uh, something that you would usually, you know, like it. For example, I don't have a sweet tooth. I really don't. Uh, however, coming out of a show, we, I finished in Portland uh, and I went to Voodoo Donuts. Voodoo. You know what I'm saying? Now, I don't eat donuts, right? Um, but I got uh, basically like six or eight donuts. <laughs> and when I bought these donuts, <laughs> the, the most the craziest thing is I said to my to my darling partner, Rachel, I said, how could you let me do that? Like, why'd you let me buy, buy six? She's like, you wanted six, that's what you wanted. I'm like, now I've got six, I'm gonna eat all of them. And I did, I was very ill. So I would say coming out to show, yeah, some donuts. Oh, that's so funny, man. Like I uh, don't like donuts. I'm not a donut guy and voodoo donuts are the, the donuts that I've enjoyed the most in my life. They are impressive, I will say that. <laughs> all right brandon kempter thank you so much for for joining us that was great we'll have to get you back on it's, it's always good to pick your brain that was an absolute sure. pleasure thanks for having me Appreciate oh wh where can the people find you they're looking for oh, useless. BK. useless we'll put we'll put this in an intro at the front as well because thomas is useless correct <laughs> uh probably the easiest way to find me is on instagram uh just at the handle brandon kempter You'll find me there. Uh, I interestingly don't have a business page, but uh, you can always find me on Facebook at Brandon Kempter and add me there if you please as well. Awesome, man. Thanks once more. Um, yeah, all the best from here. and We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, man.